everyone to the TED podcast of the Media and Journalism Society. It's such a pleasure to be together in the presence of these wonderful ladies once again. And um, for this day's episode, we have an exciting guest. But before I reveal who our guest is, we will just go around the table and have all the ladies introduce themselves. We will start with... My name is Magretha and I am a Master's Media and Communications Industry student. Hello, my name is Copelia and I am in Politics and International Relations. Hello everyone, my name is Jenna and I'm a marketing student. So good to have everyone together once again. We're going straight to our guest. Her name is Lape Olarinoye. Lape, welcome to the Media and Journalism Podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm very privileged to be around young, budding <laughs> um, education uh, practitioners who are obviously one day going to be working in the media or marketing or even advertising. So I'm so happy to be here. Um, and thank you so much, Anabong, for pronouncing my name correctly. Everyone knows <laughs> it. But yeah, no, I mean, I don't know where to start with me. I'm just average girl, you know, <laughs> living in London. So my background, especially my professional background, is in journalism. I've been a journalist for about eight years, working across different British media organisations, from the BBC um, to Warner Brothers. And, and now, currently, I'm a freelance journalist, which means I get to work across different uh, media organisations. So currently I freelance for Sky News and TRT World, which is a Middle Eastern channel. I'm not sure you probably have heard about that channel now because of everything that's happening in Israel and Palestine. And then also I also freelance with African station. They're actually international, but with a focus on Africa. They're called Arise News. So uh, I'm a correspondent for them as well. So yeah, I think I've spread my tentacles across the world. I don't really want to focus just on the UK kind of want to look at, um, you know, Africa, Middle East, the big regions that have a lot of news coming out of there. Yeah, and, and I also uh, happen to lecture media production at the University of East London, which is amazing. And I've always wanted to go into academia. And, and this was my chance to kind of balance the two. So yeah, I'm still very much in the industry, um, but also kind of enhancing my career in the world of, of academics. So yeah, and, and I get to meet lovely people like you guys, which I don't get to do that usually when I'm working in, in TV. So it's lovely to be here and thank you all so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you guys. Wow. You know, just hearing about your experiences, it sounds really exciting. Yeah. But um, there's something that I really need to get from what you said. You said something about your lecturing presently, media production. Can you tell us a bit about that? What does it entail? What is media production? Okay, so um, currently, I mean, media production as a, as a discipline on its own is just exploring different aspects of media, whether, whether that's traditional media, whether that's new media, whether that's looking at campaigns uh, for social media, and also just looking at, like, you know, documentary because documentary in itself is an individual kind of production it takes uh, you know a different way of thought to produce documentary I actually specialize in documentary so like you guys when I did my master's at the University of Birmingham I did that in television journalism and I specialized in documentary so I've, I've made quite a few documentaries one of which I actually got to travel abroad for I went to um, West Africa so I went to Nigeria Ivory Coast and Ghana um, looking at child domestic labor going through those countries, which is a very normalised thing in, in, in African, West African culture, if not all African culture. So I was looking at the, the chain of which, how they're trafficked, really. And, you know, that was, that was uh, tipped for CNN's Freedom Project, which they focus on modern-day slavery. Some of my other documentaries have been on uh, mental health and suicide in Nigeria, specifically. And, you know, 
I like to do documentaries. This is part of media production as well. I like to um, encourage students to, if you're going to produce a piece of work, then make sure it has an impact. Um, it's not about you. The story's never about you. Um, it's always about the impact that you're trying to create. And so, of course, I wanted to raise awareness about the mental health and, and suicide rates in a country where people don't believe mm -hmm. in mental health. People don't mm -hmm. really, well, they don't really take it seriously. And actually, they had soaring rates of suicide, especially with young children, well, young people, especially people in uni. And so um, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It was quite interesting, actually. So there's this product, Enobong, you might be familiar with it. It's called Sniper. Right, so the sniper is like a uh, a pesticide. Um, of course, if you live in a tropical country, there's lots of um, mosquitoes and vermin and stuff that come in and out of your houses. So a lot of people um, use this product to kill these pesticides. But actually, the purpose of the product is to be used on farms and it's for agricultural use to kill off pesticides on, on large farms. But somehow this product was getting into people's homes and actually it was getting into poorer people's homes, working class people's homes. And as a result, a lot of the quick access and, and the, the price is so cheap. It's like mm. 50p to get them. And they're really potent, really, really strong. And so it was getting into people's households. Lots of people were using it. Lots of people I knew were using it. It was a, it was a household product. But the darker side to that was that people were using it to commit suicide. It was a very quick way to commit suicide. So I got access for the first time. They've never let cameras on the... Um, the kind of equivalent of, you know, a state hospital there. So I got into a university teaching hospital uh, on their A&E board and you could just see the damage that was caused by that. Anyway, to cut the long story short, um, we did that. We went undercover to the manufacturers to find out if they knew the damage that it was causing and so on. And, you know, there was an impact, which goes back to my point about creating an impact, because mm -hmm. the week after we had released that documentary, the body that deals with drugs and distribution, they're called NAFDAC, actually banned the use of the substance. But of course, there's a lot of bureaucracy um, in countries like that, whereby, you know, it's lip service, you know, they ban it in writing, but actually it still gets into people's homes um, and so on. But the point is we raised the awareness, we blew the whistle on the, pro on, on the product, and it was very reminiscent of the BBC documentary that looked at the excessive use of codeine in Nigeria. So um, that ours came shortly after that. Well, yeah, mine came shortly after that. But um, I worked with a great team. I did it with Arise News, who are amazing. Um, and, and I still work with them till, till, till this day. So, yeah, those are the kind of productions that I kind of want to encourage students to be a part of. So in answer to your question, I mean, I've gone full circle, but in answer to your question, media production is just about the different kinds of productions and the different kinds of media that we have today. I started this job in April, so very new, and I've started at an awkward time of term. So at the moment, I'm doing a lot of um, marking, but I've the, the, the main course I've taught is uh, professional development, which was a lot to do with um, campaigns about local stories, so different kinds of campaigns, social media, poster campaigns and so on. So, yeah, that's really, in a nutshell, what media production is about. I can see you guys looking at my running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, up next we have Jenna with a question. So, hearing your story, I'm like, my mind's blown, I'm shocked. I have like no words to articulate <laughs> what you uncovered as a journalist. So speaking of your work, especially in West Africa and just hearing stories about sniper and labor, can you tell us about a situation where you experienced your biggest challenge as a, as a journalist? Sure, yeah. Um, and I think it would be looking at documentary. Like I say, I 
specialise in documentary. Documentary is like my favourite thing to do because unlike news reports, which I do every day, you know, you have unlimited time to put things together, which also means that they come with a lot of challenges. So for example, when I did do that documentary exploring child domestic labour through West Africa, there were a lot of challenges. There was almost like a daily challenge every day, getting access to people's families and lives and talking to these case studies. A lot of the time you will travel about four or five hours and then they don't want to speak to you, even though they've prearranged or the locals in the villages are influencing answers or telling them what not to say. So I had a young girl who, when we had got there, she was actually working. So she was, um, there's this kind of oil that they use in West Africa, in West African dishes, it's called palm oil. So she was um, working in the, I don't know what it is, it's like a pit. Mm-hmm. She's about 13. So she's typically, she's meant to be at school. But she was working in, in, in these palm oil pits, you know, covered in palm oil, which is really pungent kind of oils, really, you know, it discolors everything. And so she was working there. So we would, we would love, we, we wanted to speak to her. We had spoken to her parents who are farmers. They had told us about their decisions to sending her away to these kind of, I don't know, I like to call them traffickers because that's essentially what they're doing. Traffic these young children to different homes to work as domestic staff, but you know, it's not staffing really. But so we, we wanted to talk to her and she was keen to speak to us. You know, she was had a really lovely smile. I remember her face till this day. But unfortunately, as soon as you know everyone in the villages saw the cameras, they all came flooding in. And whilst I was asking her questions, you know, they were influencing her answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, telling her what to say and what not to say. She would start a sentence and then suddenly stop. And we were doing that back and forth for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. It was a lot of wasting of time, really. So I just had to diffuse the situation. I had to take her for a walk, you know, make her feel comfortable, had my mic still on. So these are some of the challenges you face in journalism. You have to think on your feet. You have to figure out, you know, we've travelled here for five hours. We have to get something out of this. So, you know, I had to kind of make her feel comfortable enough to speak to me. And then she really, really like broke down and told me how she felt. Um, which was amazing. And and also, it's very good to let the, your audience know what's happening in your environment. So I had to tell the camera that, actually, look, we have these people behind us who are influencing her answer. So it makes it understandable as to why I'm taking her on a walk and trying to speak to her on, on a human level. Because a lot of these human stories, you have to have that interpersonal relationship. You have to make people feel comfortable. I told this a lot to my students as well, that you know, if you're going to go and interview a case study, just make sure you feel very comfortable, make sure you make them feel comfortable, and make sure, make sure you assure them that you know, you're not trying to publicize their story or promote their story. You're just trying to raise awareness about their condition, um, about the situation that they're in. And a lot of the times people do really, you know, depending on your approach, people do really open up to you. So those are some of the challenges. Those are, that's just like one example out of many, but I think that was the most frustrating for me because it was a different environment. I didn't know how to, you know, and they also spoke a different language. So, you know, I had a, a, um, a fixer, which is a term that we use in journalism for getting somebody to, you know, connect you to these stories. So she was lovely. She happens to be a family friend. So she was able to kind of speak to them in the language. But even then they weren't listening to her so much so until I removed the young lady from that situation. But those are one of the many challenges and you just have to really figure out a way to navigate it. It's all about thinking on your feet, really. So still on the topic of challenges, we are living in a pandemic, which is still, you know, one of the biggest challenges we've faced as a world, mm-hmm. as, a glo- as a globe and, you know, as populations. How has the pandemic changed the way you work as a journalist? This is a really interesting question. And mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked that because we're considered key workers. So 
I started working, so I've previously worked with Sky News before back in 2015, and then I decided to go on this whole like journey of exploring the world and stuff. So when I came back and I went back to Sky, I started like bang in the middle of the pandemic. So every, all the stories we were doing were about COVID. Yeah. But luckily, I mean, Sky is privileged enough to have a huge campus. I mean, the offices are like the campus that we're on now. So there was enough room for social distancing. We were regularly testing. Uh, we were almost testing, I think, every two days, I think. Okay. Um, a lot of the times, because I was a reporter, I would get sent out to a location outdoors. I'd be outdoors for about eight hours, you know, doing lives back to back. So it didn't really, in answer to your question, it didn't really change the way we worked. We just were more socially distant when we were in an indoors environment. Mm-hmm. But most of the time I was on location, I was on, 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 on different stories across across England. So it, in a way, it did change the way we worked because we had to adapt to using more of, um, there's this thing called TVUs, where you can work from home and do like lives from home, but that's only if the story didn't require you to go to a location. Mm-hmm. But actually, for me, the pandemic didn't really change how I worked as a journalist. I was still going into work. I was still telling stories live at locations. I was going to protest. Mm. And so, yeah, it didn't really change the way we worked. We were just out on the field more than mm-hmm. in the office. And when we were in the office, they made it very suitable. Actually, I think Sky specifically foresaw the, the whole social distancing mm. thing. So before we went into lockdown, they were already doing, you know, the one-way system, the sanitizers, excessive cleaning, temperature testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really intense. Even getting in there, um, into the building from the car park is really intense. So there was really no reason as to why we were encouraged to work from home. I mean, some people did if you didn't have to physically be in the office. So like HR, finance and Mm. other departments, but core journalists, reporters and correspondents, even producers, we all had to be on site um but we were massively social distance i think it was about 20 of us in the office at the same time reading nobody sat next to me and stuff so it didn't really change the way i was working um but then i got this job and um that that was different because i had to teach from home which i'm a people person so i was i thought this was so bizarre and students you know you guys know you never put their cameras on so (laughs) it's just looking at a blank screen hoping someone's listening i find it i found it really really weird but after a while i got used to it i just got used to talking to a blank screen Um, my husband thought it was crazy he's like i'm not talking to anyone (laughs) yeah and then also the engagement you know a lot of times students i know know some of them were probably just in bed you know (laughs) just logged in from bed don't blame them but so you, you didn't really get that engagement that you would get like we're having now. Exactly. So yeah, that, exactly. that was a downside of, of the pandemic and pandemic. So yeah, hope that answers your question. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Speaking of students and, you know, they're aspiring to be journalists and, and marketing people and all that. What kind of advice do you have for students who want to be journalists? Oh, gosh, I get this question a lot. And I think I always say the same thing. <laughs> I think the first thing is get work. So for me... Um, I had a, I had a, a guy message me yesterday asking me a similar question, mm-hmm. and he's you know an international student. Also, he's running out of time to get into work and so on and so forth. So, I I, I think the first thing that I did that I I felt like really helped me and has helped other people is um, trying to get as much free work as possible. I mean, let's be clear, journalism is a passion driven industry mm-hmm. you don't do this for money yeah, yeah, yeah you definitely exactly. don't do this job for money and so if you are financially driven then i would say it's not the industry for you mm-hmm. and if you're not patient enough to rise then again it's not the industry for you 
However, if you're passionate, you love what you do, and you can tell really good stories, I would say you need to start getting work. So when I was in university, like you guys, even before I did a master's, when I was doing my undergraduate, I would always find local BBC stations in the area and try and get them to give me some work experience. You know, half the time you make tea and coffee, but you're on the environment. You can see how the different departments work together and so on. And you're in uni. So you see that, you go back to uni and you implement it into your work and and speak to your lecturers and so on. So I started doing that a lot. And then I did my master's and got a placement with Warner Brothers where I really learned how to produce production Mm -hmm. did a lot of bbc productions and i'm not sure if you watch any of the shows long lost family who do you think you are where they kind of trace where you're from then i did some stuff for the national geographic channel underground world and drugs inc jenna i'm sure you probably watch those in america they're quite american shows so uh, just looking at you know drug drug world and you know what people do underground and that kind of thing so Really, and, and I was a researcher, so I really got, I had to really find information on the story. So I think, you know, getting those kind of jobs really helped me understand um, the world of production, not just journalism, but media production, and then also journalism, how it works, and learning to produce and stuff like that. And I, and I did that, you know, almost every semester, or not, if not every summer, just finding someone that could give me an internship, just give me a placement, just let me come and see what you're doing. And so I would really advise trying to get work. Mm. Those patterns that I created for myself led me to getting, firstly, an internship with Sky News. And then, um, because I had gone there and knew what I was doing, um, they then kept me on as a freelance producer. So I was producing the news. Um, Shifts were awful. Um, (laughs) I was producing the news. And then then when that finished, again, I went away to London Live, which was a, a local channel. Again, part of my advice, always try and get in with local stuff because... Yes, they might not be on the t- on uh, national television and the whole world is watching them. But if you do really well there, you can sell yourself to the nationals. And so I, I went off to London Live um, and did like a video. I was a video journalist, so I was doing everything from pre-production to post-production, finding my story, pitching it to the editors, and then going away, finding the case studies, interviewing them, asking questions, even to like consent forms where you have to get them to sign that they're okay to talk about this and that. So I did a lot, did a lot of stuff in Newham about, because obviously London stories, so did a lot of stuff about regeneration. I'm not sure how long you guys have lived in London, but it didn't look, this part of London did not look like this before. It was very flat. It wasn't sky rise, it wasn't expensive. It was very, it was a, it was a very much a working wow. class area. <laughs> yeah, it was very much a working class area. If I show you the pictures of Stratford before, I mean, and, and I mean like 2000s, yeah, 2000s, before the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Then the Olympics came and suddenly there was this cash injection. Uh, but the dark side to that was a lot of the local people that lived here were being pushed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of looking at that debate of, you know, is it good to make the area all fancy um, at the risk of these people losing their homes and getting rehoused to places like Birmingham where they have no support network whatsoever. So those kind of local stories that impact people. And then I did a lot of stuff about, you know, African communities and living in London. So I did a lot of those kind of things, but but I was able to come up with a showreel. I was able to put all my work together, everything I had done, you know, at Warner, at Sky, at, you know, at London Live, put that all together. And when I was going for the big nationals and going to, to speak to those big nationals, I was able to show something. So that's my second piece of advice. So the okay. first is obviously try and get work mm-hmm. as soon as possible, particularly as a student. And then my second piece of advice would be to have something to show. I can't stress that enough. You need something to show the employees. It's all well and good selling yourself and telling them you've done this and you've done that. But if they can't see it, 
you're as good as the next person. So always having a good showreel is also very good. You know, always, the first thing I did was get a hard drive because it's just so hard. But I think now you can put stuff on the cloud and stuff. And, yeah. yeah. So it's a lot different. Um, so yeah, I would say have something to show, um, which helped me majorly. And I would say follow your passion. A lot of people overlook the fact that journalism here is very cutthroat. It's a very tough industry to get into and you need to be aware of that when you're applying for jobs or you're trying to get in. Most of the time you will get no's because you're competing with thousands of other people. But that shouldn't deter you. You should always continue and try and see the next best thing. It happened to me. I was very deterred and I thought, I want to tell African stories. I come from Africa, I'm Nigerian. I have a lot of stories to tell there that aren't being showcased in the mainstream. And I found my niche, which is my third piece of advice. Find your niche. Yeah. Find something that makes you special and, and makes you, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Makes you, make you sell yourself to other people as, you know, as crude as that sounds. You know, just making sure you stand out. And that really, that, that made me stand out. You know, telling stories that people weren't telling properly. And also the, the whole issue of diversity, you know. We should tell our own stories and we should be able to, to tell that to the mainstream world. And when I got to Sky News, I, I showcased that again because, you know, we had the whole SARS campaign in Nigeria where yeah. young people were protesting. Mm -hmm. So I got, I got to cover all of that, both in Nigeria and in, and in London with the Nigerian communities here. So... That was lovely. Um, so I think those are the, those are the four pieces of advice I'd give. Get work, have something to show, find your niche, and also don't give up. You know, you just have mm. to carry on. There's lots of people that don't become established journalists till they're middle-aged, you know? You, mm. They try and follow, which is why I say, if you're not driven by passion, it's not an industry for you. So, Capelia? Uh, I will definitely keep this advice in mind. <laughs> oh, good, good, you should. Yes. <laughs> So you told us that you are working for different uh, TV outlets. So yeah. why have you decided to be an independent journalist and not like working full time for the BBC, for example? So I think I think when you do decide to work for one media station, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But like I said, I think there's a lot of commitment that comes with that. It means that, you know, you have to tell the stories that essentially that you're pitched to do. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time to kind of diversify yourself as a journalist. And also, when you freelance, you get paid more money. I mean, it's all about the money, isn't it? So uh, you get paid, you get paid more money. So um, for me, like, it, it wasn't really about the money for me, to be honest. It is for some other people, but it wasn't really about the money for me. It was being able to be versatile and, and diverse. So I didn't want to completely remove myself from the African journalism industry. I loved it, and I thought that it propelled me forward a lot. And so I wanted to retain that. But also, I wanted to tell stories around me, because I live in London, and I live in the UK, and I've born and bred here so I wanted to have that connection too but I also wanted to tell stories about regions that we might not be getting anything from like the Middle East so it's really just about spreading your tentacles really being a freelance journalist and you can plan your time around that so I recently had a child and if I was a full-time journalist I think that would have I would have struggled a little a little bit more if I wasn't freelance you know I can decide I don't want those shifts for this week because I want to spend time with my son or you know next week I want to do shifts back to back because I feel like I've got a lot to give so I think at the time that I made that decision it was a good decision before that I did work full-time so I was working okay. full-time for London Live um, and then I did a bit of full-time for Warner and then I also did I was doing full-time for Arise um, in Lagos where I was a newscaster reporter when I had my son I moved back to from my tour of Africa And then I wanted to do freelance because it allowed me to do several different things. Um, and also, if it wasn't for freelancing, I wouldn't also be able to teach as well. So I think it, it just allows for you to have a lot more opportunity and not streamline yourself.
Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And can you describe your typical typical day as a journalist and a lecturer? Maybe before COVID, because now yeah, it's sure. changed. <laughs> sure, sure. So, um, of course, I've been a lecturer during COVID. Um, yeah. So, like mm-hmm. I said earlier, I think it was just the getting used to the whole teaching people, you know, not speaking to anybody like physically <laughs> in a blank screen. But <laughs> in terms of journalism, uh, pre-COVID, my typical day is, well, wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is look at all the news, what's happened overnight, trawl through the, the uh, whether that's, you know, looking at newspapers online or looking at Twitter, which is a really good mm-hmm. source of information. I mean, I hate the app in terms of, you know, socialising, but I love it for news. You, you know, always like get... AP or... Yeah, so, so AP, AFP, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with. Um, <laughs> and then there's also Reuters. And then you have, like, BBC Monitor, which is... You know, for people that are really in the industry, you know, you you have yes. kind of sources of news and stuff. So, yeah, AP, Reuters and Co, they kind of give you all the information as is happening. Um, and then you can look at, like, summaries, you can look at different angles, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I tend to look at, you know, I, I, I like to have an honest view of stories. So I don't look at just one outlet for news. I look at several different outlets. So that's what I do in the morning, first thing I wake up. Um, and then after that, I will probably, if I'm going to work that day, I would have had an email telling me what my day's looking like. And then I'd go into the office. Or if I don't have to go into the office, I'd go to the st- where the story is. So, um, I don't know, I'll give you an example. So once I've had to cover a story of a police officer that was murdered in the police station um, by a, a suspect um, okay. that they had arrested. So he was brought into the station and somehow shot a police officer in Croydon, which was really, really bizarre. So, of course, I was going through the news, you know, there was other news happening. And then I got the email, you know, you need to be here, this is what's happened, blah, blah, blah. And so I think whilst you do get to locations, the first thing is you need to start speaking to people. Mm -hmm. So what's happened? Who is this person? Um, Did you know the person? And then you see all the things happening around you, people laying flowers. And in this case, what was really interesting about the story, which we grabbed from the second we got there, was lots and lots of people were coming to lay, lay flowers. And they, a lot of them were the public. It wasn't police officers. Mm-hmm. I mean, police officers were, but the majority of the people were mm-hmm. the public. And we wanted to know why. Um, and it was because away from his job, you know, may his soul rest in peace, the, the police officer, away from his day job as a police officer, he was also very involved in the community. So he used to teach rugby to the local boys there. He used to attend all the different um, churches. And so he was very part of the community. I mean, there were lots of people there. So it was shocking. So having to tell that story on the hour, every hour, with a different angle, is something that you kind of get, you understand through the day as the story's building. So, So that's a typical example of, you know, like a very gruesome story but then if you go to a protest it's a completely different vibe you know it's busy it's loud it's aggressive and speaking to people again so a lot of it when you're on the field is about speaking to people if I'm in the office I'll go in see what I'm doing already familiarize myself with the story and then communicate that to you know millions of people every day so it's usually just getting up understanding what's what the what the headlines are for that day getting into work seeing if you can pull up more angles to that story, understanding what you're about to say, and then going on it and saying it. And usually you do that on the hour, every hour for the rest of your shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's typical. Um, or if you don't do live, you're probably making a package, which you, I think to you guys probably is a news report. So mm-hmm. they're called packages in like TV um, lingo. So 
yeah packages are really interesting because you have the whole day to do them so in the morning you can speak to a case study um can i come and interview at this time with this people blah 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 and then you would go and film all the things that you need to put together and then you do your voiceover and then you'd edit and then it would come together and it would go on air at, oh, yeah, okay. at seven o'clock so yeah so then your day would be done so that's typically how it, the day goes if you're making packages or you're doing live okay thank you oh, thank right, you so welcome. much all right i'm afraid we've come to the end of our podcast for today day i mean if we had our own choice i mean we would continue right yeah, coffee with laughing <laughs> anyways so just before we round up i would just like to ask um what are your expectations for the new year in terms of academy so, what are you looking forward to mm. actually achieving or maybe getting back from the students okay um, so I'm definitely looking forward to being back on campus, I think. Mm-hmm. The whole online thing, I mean, it's nice to an extent if you're doing tutorials or that kind of thing, but, or, you know, supervising people that are doing dissertations. But having this lovely conversation that we're having now is one thing I'm definitely expecting from next semester. I'm also expecting a lot of interest, you know? I mean, there's no point studying something if you're not interested in it. I'm expecting that from students. At the moment, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of engagement in terms of getting work done. And I'm also really looking forward to getting to know students, you know, what their Mm. dreams and aspirations are. How do they want to get into these industries? What do you plan on doing? And I'm also looking forward to, I think lastly, being able to give them the knowledge that I have about the industry. And I think that's what I really wanted when I was studying. Um, I think I wanted real, honest, accurate and up-to-date information about an industry that's so closed. And I didn't have that at the time. So that's really the driving force as to why I wanted to go and teach media production and also work with journalism students as well. So for me, that's that's really what I'm expecting from next year. I'm really excited to, to, to teach some of the subjects that or modules, should I say, that, that people have been doing, but I'm going to bring my own, my own touch to that. So yeah, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm really excited for September, and it's really a huge shame that you guys won't be back in September, we won't, probably won't bump into each other, but, oh, well, Jenna's going to be here, so okay, good. Um, so at least I get to see Jenna. But Margretha, Anna Bong, and Capellia, it's really lovely to get to chat with you um, uh, and understand what your interests are. Like I say, it is a shame that you won't be back next year. But hopefully we stay in touch and, and talk on every level. But yeah, those, those are what, what the key things I'm expecting for next year. All right. Thank you. We're running out of time. Thank you once again, Lape, for gracing us with your it's presence. I think um, my take home for today is the advice, even though I might not be going into journalism, but it's, t- I mean, you can still apply mm. wherever I find myself. Find and work, put in your put in the hours and you know you have something to showcase mm-hmm. and find what's unique about you yeah. and never give up. Okay then, so um that brings us to the end of our TED podcast, the Media and Journalism Podcast. I hope you have a listen. I just want to say thank you to every one of you that came today. And Patrick, thank you very much for always <laughs> thank you for being there for us. <laughs> All right, then. It's bye-bye from me and the ladies. See you. Thank you. Bye.